0: The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at EmanuelCommunity.org. We left the story of Job in a moment of this uncomfortable silence. Job's wife makes mockery of his integrity and says, uh, why don't you just curse God and just die already and when news of his this tragedy reaches Job's friends they come together and in order to offer him some comfort and when they arrive they are speechless in shock barely recognizing their friend because of the degree to which he's been disfigured by his illness and so for seven days they don't utter a word to him but they just sit with him in total silence and I, as I said last week, the most charitable interpretation of this act is that they were practicing good counseling technique, right? Um, letting their presence do all that they're talking for them. But in just a little bit, Job's three friends are going to show actually how little empathy and compassion they have for Job. And so I really wonder if that's really what's going on here. It actually may be more likely that they kept silent because they simply had no words that they felt they could offer. They would offer any comfort to somebody in as miserable a state as Job was in. And what I said in last week's message was I talked about how suffering often leads to a profound loneliness. We may be surrounded by people who, despite their sincerity and their care over us, cannot truly understand what we're going through. They cannot really walk in our shoes when we are really going through suffering like that. At the end of these seven days of grieving, it's interesting, but Job is the one who finally breaks the silence, not the friends. And he breaks it with a lament. And up to now, the story has been mostly about Job hearing about what he is like through the perspective of others, whether it's God or the Satan figure or the narrator of the story. But now in chapter 3, Job gives us a window directly into his heart of how he's been experiencing everything that he's going through. There's no guesswork here. He's going to tell us what he's feeling inside. And when he unleashes it, it is brutal. It is difficult to listen to. As we saw, Job's initial response was actually a very deep sense of acceptance and surrender to what God had been doing in his life. Chapter 1, verse 21 to 22, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And even when his wife pressed him to turn his back on God because she argues God has turned his back on you, he remains steadfast. Chapter 2, verse 10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. But that was the quiet Job who, having lost everything imaginable of value in his life, um, still remain faithful. But now when God takes everything away, pretty much, including now his health, this quiet Job gives way to a noisy Job. And the words that Job is going to say are not directed to his wife. They're not directed to his friends. They're not even directed to God. In a way, this lament that he cries out in chapter 3 is really him speaking to himself. Saying what's been welling up in his heart. And we're going to divide what he says in this lament into basically two parts. The first part are these curses that he utters. And then the second part is a series of questions that he asks. So let's start with the curses in chapter 3, verse 1 to 10. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish. And the night that said a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year nor be entered into any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Wow. When Job finally speaks, what comes out of his mouth are curses. But these are not curses directed as God, as the Satan said he would do. But boy, he gets really right up to the edge of that, doesn't he? Instead, he points the curses at himself. And these self-directed curses are not the result of any guilt that he feels or any sense in which he has done something to deserve this as if this was punishment against him. They are aimed at the deepest level imaginable of his very existence. Job curses the day of his birth, and he curses the night that he was conceived. And it's really hard to listen to somebody talk this negatively, isn't it, about the day of his birth? In light of everything that has happened to him, Job comes to this disturbing conclusion that it would have been better not to have been born at all than to be born into this world. Old Testament scholars who have studied these curses of Job Have found a pattern in it in which they say these are in essence like incantations in which Job is through these curses undoing the very language that God used when he created the universe in Genesis 1. God would say let there be light and Job says let the deepest darkness blot out the light. God says, let there be stars in the heavens and other heavenly bodies to light up the night sky. And he says, let these stars disappear and let there be a gloom and a darkness to reclaim the darkness of night. God would call forth with his voice life into existence. And Job sees no value in his life and he wishes that he could undo the day that brought him life brought him existence. And these curses of Job raise a really difficult question. When is a life worth living? When is a life worth living? Is that even a legitimate question to ask of life? In other words, is there such a thing as a life not worth living? To make it a bit more personal, let me ask you this. What could be taken away from you or what could happen to you that would make you question whether your life is better than death? It's kind of tragic to me, but if you look at recent surveys, like a Pew research study that was done recently, and they asked young couples why they have chosen not to have children, one of the top answers that this generation gave is because they said they don't want to bring a child into a world like ours. In other words seeing the state of our world many young people today have sadly come to the conclusion that non-existence is better than existence but here's the thing job seems to have come to a similar conclusion based on these curses that he hurls against the day of his own birth in essence i think what job is crying out is, if this is what I can expect of life, is this life even worth living? Wouldn't death be better? So those are the curses that Job utters in the beginning of his song. Job then launches into a series of questions. In chapters uh, 3, verse 11 to 19, it says, Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and rulers of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave driver shout. The small and the great are there, and the slaves are freed from their owners. Job's opening questions are a continuation of his curses in a way. They extend his lament beyond now the days of his birth to now including the care that he received as an infant. And he basically is complaining why did my mother bother to nurse me with her breast when I was a baby? Why didn't she just leave me to die? And then he compares his present suffering with the peace. That he would be experiencing in the afterlife now i need to pause here and go on a little bit of a an aside because i think there's a lot of confusion here about how the afterlife is portrayed in the old testament people living in the old testament didn't have nearly the developed understanding of the afterlife that we see in the new testament and basically in the old testament when when you die, you go to a place known as Sheol, Sheol. And most of the descriptions of Sheol in the Old Testament are not very pleasant. But also, it would be going too far to say Sheol equals hell in the New Testament, or Gehenna. I don't think that's true. Sheol is never described as a place of punishment or um, a place of judgment but when you read descriptions of Sheol it does seem like it is a place where we are somehow separated from God Isaiah chapter 38 verse 18 says for Sheol cannot thank you death cannot praise you those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness and so although there seems to be some separation from God in Sheol There is also a sense in which God's presence isn't totally excluded in Sheol. Psalm 139 verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. It's not clear whether Jews in the Old Testament believe that everyone who died went to Sheol. But we do find this interesting passage in Ecclesiastes, chapter 6, verse 6. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. Now, this is where it gets a little confusing because in the Old Testament, Sheol is clearly identifying some type of a location for the afterlife. But it is also used symbolically to represent death itself. And so it's at times hard to know how to interpret passages like this. The last point I want to make, though, is that Sheol in the Old Testament seems to have some type of an equalizing or humbling effect on all those who die, particularly to those who held power in this life, like kings and princes. And so you see one of the most extensive teachings on Sheol in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 9 to 11, it says this, Sheol from beneath, and this is Isaiah speaking to the king of Babylon, and it says, Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering. So it's saying, you were once a great king in the empires of the earth. But now in Sheol you are nothing you are just like one of us you're a nobody and that seems to be consistent with the picture that Job paints of Sheol basically the word Sheol is not used in this verse although it will be used eight times in the book of Job but when he talks about the afterlife he is saying then I would lie with kings and rulers who once built for themselves great empires but they just lie in ruins now and they amassed great wealth but where is. All that wealth now and then he even points to these captives and slaves and says these who suffered so much on this life in this life they find rest in Sheol there seems to be this equalizing effect of the afterlife in the Old Testament and so here's the thing in the Old Testament, people did not seem to put their hope in the afterlife very much. It wasn't something that you were longing for is to die and somehow go to heaven or something like that. There isn't much of that language in the Old Testament if there is any of it at all. Instead, what the Old Testament people seemed to hope for is prolonged life. They didn't want to die prematurely because Sheol was a place to be avoided as long as possible. And so their hope in God was in the present life. Bless me now. Make this life good for me. Show your favor in this life. And part of that meant give me long life. Give me many years in this life. But Job has reached the point of such utter despair that he has no more hope for this life. And so he finds comfort in the thought of Sheol, believing that at least there he can find some relief from the pain that he is experiencing. In essence, he's saying it cannot get any worse than this. So he embraces death and says, I wish I was never born job changes his focus in the next set of questions in verses 20 to 23 why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul to those who long for death that does not come who search for it more than for hidden treasure who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave why is life given to a man whose way is hidden whom God has hedged in. This is also really disturbing language that Job is using here. But what he is saying is this, Job questions why would God give anyone this quote, gift of life, to someone who is only looking forward to the relief of death? Why doesn't death come to me when that's all I long for? It's interesting at the beginning of the story, This Satan figure accused God of putting a hedge of protection and blessing around Job, didn't he? And he in essence said, because you have blessed him so much, what else is he going to do? He has no choice but to follow you and secure your favor. And so of course he worships you, God. But here at this point in the story, Job argues, he too says, God has put a hedge around me. But he says, the hedge that I am experiencing is the prison of my misery from which there is no escape or no relief. You see, this trap works both ways. If you experience a life of blessing, then hey, no surprise, you're a Christian, right? Why wouldn't you love God and follow him? What's there to complain about after all? But if you experience a life of suffering, then is there any surprise? I mean, who would fault you for rejecting God and walking away from him? After all, hasn't God abandoned you? I shared this before in a previous message, but I think it's relevant at this point in the story of Job. We have these two statements. God is good and life is good. And I think for most of us, these two statements go hand in hand. They are inseparable. We just don't realize that that's what we really believe. What I'm saying is this. We don't know what it means to say God is good. Apart from experiencing a life that is good. So then what happens when our life isn't going so well? Is God still good? I mean, we just said it this morning in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus invites us to pray, deliver us from evil. So then what happens if despite our prayers, evil touches our life? Real maturity is when we can say God is good, even when life isn't good. Eliphaz will be the first one of Job's three friends to speak when the silence is over. And the first words that will come out of his mouth is a confrontation to Job. And he will say this to Job in chapter 4, verse 3 to 5. Behold, you have admonished many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand, and you have strengthened feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. What Eliphaz is saying to Job is, Job, you are always the wise one among us. You are the sage who had all the right answers anytime anyone was struggling in their faith. Everyone turned to you for your words of wisdom. But now you're in your own season of struggle. And where is all that wisdom now? Now. These words hit me particularly hard as a pastor because my entire career is made of helping people in moments of crisis, it seems. And how much advice so freely falls from my lips. And it made me think, how would I respond if I went through that same trial that this person is going through? Will those words of wisdom so glibly come from my lips to my own heart? Will the same advice that I have offered to so many others really minister to me in that moment of crisis and need? You see, suffering moves us from the theoretical to the real, forcing us to ask what we genuinely believe about God and his ways. John Walton echoes what John Piper had shared with uh, me as a seminary student that I shared in my first message on Job, about developing a theology of suffering before we suffer. He writes in his commentary in C.S. Lewis' book, A Grief Observed, he tells of how he found that all of his sage insights into dealing with suffering became nothing but so much meaningless rhetoric when he was faced with his wife Joy's suffering. We cannot really understand suffering until we are involved in it. But we can prepare for it. In fact, we must do so. It is too late to learn a piano concerto when you walk onto the stage to perform it. It is past time to get into shape when you line up at the starting line for the marathon. In the same way, we try to prepare ourselves for suffering before it comes upon us. This leads to Job's final thoughts on his suffering in verses 24 to 26. For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. In essence, Job is saying, he's making a confession as he ends his lament. And he said... I knew this day was going to come. I knew it. He was saying, I've been waiting for this moment my entire life. I was afraid this day was going to come. What does that say about his belief about God? Remember that this is the same Job in chapter 1, that every time his kids threw a party, what would he do? He would fastidiously offer sacrifices for every single one of his children. Why? Just in case they had accidentally sinned and gotten God angry. This is the same Job. And now that he is experiencing suffering, his trust is beginning to crumble. And he's saying, I knew this day was going to come. It was too good to last. And what I feared all my life has finally come to reality. And I wonder for how many of us, this is our view of God. God blesses grudgingly, but he punishes with relish. This is what God loves to do, is to make us miserable and to take away our happiness. What is your theology of suffering? What sense can you make when you go through hard times are you always waiting for the other shoe to drop are you always waiting for bad stuff to happen assuming that that's what god wants for you listen i told you i'm not going to try to relieve all of the tension because it is built up to an almost unbearable level in the book of job But I can't send you home saying amen. (laughs) I can't close like this, okay? Whatever sense we make of our suffering, this is why to me the cross of Christ is such an anchoring point to our faith. Because when we see the cross of Christ, what it says is whatever difficult explanations we have to the problem of suffering, One answer is not that we worship a cold and heartless God that does not care for us. The cross eliminates that option. John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, wrote this. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross in the real world of pain how could one worship a god who was immune to it i have entered many buddhist temples in different asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the buddha his legs crossed arms folded eyes closed the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth a remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world but each time after a while i have had to turn away And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood tears and death he suffered for us our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his there is still a question mark against human suffering but over it we boldly stamp another mark the cross which symbolizes divine suffering god in the person of jesus christ entered into our world of suffering to experience it himself and bear our pain on his body. One last thing as I close here and we'll end here. What we also see in the story of Job is what happens when we really don't understand the hope that we have in God. You see the despair that settles in to the extent that a person can come to the conclusion non-existence is to be preferred over existence. Death is more welcoming than life. But the other great gift that we have through Jesus coming to us as a person is to also give us a hope that lies beyond this life. As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19 to 20, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. The promise of God is whatever you have to go through, in this life, what awaits us in the life to come is a glory unimaginable for all of us who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. I'm going to invite you in just a moment to come to the Lord's table. But before we do so, can I invite you into a moment of responsive prayer to this word? I also want to say something really important. These are taboo topics, aren't they? Christians don't like to talk about suicide, especially among our ranks. People of faith don't commit suicide. But here we see a man named Job, righteous, declared by God as blameless and upright. And yet, he was brought to such a point of despair that he would curse the day of his birth and say, you know what, I actually feel like it would have been better if I never existed in this world. And maybe some of you know what that feels like when you are actually struggling for motivation to go on and say, what's the point? What's the point? If this is all I have to look forward to in life, what's the point of going on? And I want to say if if any of you may even feel that sentiment even now, could I please urge you to reach out and seek help? Find somebody. Come to me and say, I need help. What I love so much about the Bible is how honest it is. It's not a bunch of religious fluff saying a bunch of meaningless empty words that mean nothing. What I see in the Bible that God has given us is a God that is courageous enough to invite us to stare at the very darkness of our world and say, why God, why? Help me understand who you are and what you're doing in my life. and Like I said, Job did not have the advantage that we do of being on this side of the revelation of Jesus Christ. How much we wish we could tell Job, you don't know what God has in store, what he's about to do when he will send his one and only son to die for us, that we might know life. Can I just invite you to come to God in a moment of prayer and say, God, even if I lose everything, even when life is not good, grow me in such a way that my faith can declare, God, you are so good. You are so good. If I have you, that's all I need. That's all I need in this life is you take everything. If I have Christ, I have the greatest treasure that I could ever know. Would you just pray for a few minutes, and then I'm going to invite you to come to the table.